This podcast was made possible by our Leadership Circle members, Senior Fellows Randy Pond and Lisa Sonsini, Class Matchers Greg Avis, Class 11, Madeline Fackler, Class 27, Chuck Getchke, Class 10, Karen King, Class 24, Sing Kong, Class 13, Dottie Hayes of Class 19, and Steve Smith of Class 14. We thank them all for their support. Welcome to The Dialogue. I'm Suzanne St. John Crane. Our health is in crisis. America spends almost 50% more on health care compared to other developed nations, yet it ranks at the bottom half of the industrialized world when it comes to quality outcomes. Most patients are still unable to contact their physicians via email, make online appointments, or avail medical care through a video visit. Today on The Dialogue, Senior Fellow Dr. Robert Pearl, recent CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, We'll talk about his best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care and Why We're Usually Wrong, and help us understand what is ailing the system from within and how we can get better. Dr. Pearl is donating all proceeds from book sales to charity. So Dr. Pearl, thanks for being with us. It's great to, to meet you and see you. Class 17, that's a while ago. Absolutely. <laughs> what do I you remember? Should be here. <laughs> yeah, right. Any Gold Lake memories you want to share with us? <laughs> uh, we had a great time, and yeah. everyone had a tremendous experience, and it was a wonderful educational and bonding, and the friendships remain today. So your latest adventure is Mistreated, this, this book. Why don't you talk to us about what the inspiration was to, to write it and what you hope to achieve with it. So mistreated, while we think we're getting good health care and while we're usually wrong, had multiple derivatives. One thing is the American health care system is simply broken. We spend 50% more than any other nation in the world, and it results in the lower half of the 20 industrialized nations. Uh, we uh, accept in our health care things we never accept in retail, in banking, in travel, You'd never go to a bank to find out your balance. You couldn't get it online. And yet, if you want to know your laboratory results, you have to wait till the doctor's office opens in the morning in most places in the United States today. You can't get a doctor's appointment uh, virtually uh, any, almost anywhere in the United States outside of the large multi-specialty medical groups like Kaiser Permanente. The stressing part is that half a million people die every year unnecessarily from a combination of medical error failures in prevention, and complications of chronic disease that could have been avoided. But what struck me and why I wrote the book is ask most Americans about the American healthcare system. They'll tell you the medical care is the best in the world, even if a little expensive. And it was this contrast that drew me into doing the research for the book. The other reason why I did it was my dad. My dad was one of those people who died from a medical error. He lived on the East Coast. He spent half his time in New York, half his time in Florida. And when he became sick, he had to have an operation to take out his spleen. When his spleen is taken out, you're susceptible to a particular infection. The ones in New York thought the ones in Florida had given him the vaccine that he needed to prevent against pneumococcal infections. The ones in Florida thought the ones in New York had given it to him. In the end, he never got it. My brother gets up at 5 a.m. for rounds. Here's my dad unresponsive on the floor. Takes him to the ICU, takes him four days to awaken, three weeks in the hospital. He doesn't die in that admission, but he, he dies ultimately of the complications that derived from it. He was mistreated, had hundreds of thousands of people every year mistreated, and we simply don't 
see it. And I want to use that word, we don't see it, because that's what this book is about. It's about how context shapes perception, which changes behavior. Why it's so important is how it translates into medicine. One in every three times a doctor goes from patient A to patient B's room in a hospital, he or she doesn't wash their hands. Now, every physician is required to take courses for their hospital privileges on infection. They all know that the most common problematic organism called C. difficile is transmitted by hand. They know that someone is carrying the bacteria from room A to room B. They assume it can't be themselves. They perceive it that way. As I was reading the story about your dad, I mean, it's just a really touching and, and heartfelt uh, writing about your experience, your family's experience. And, you know, a couple of thoughts there. I mean, I was the caretaker for my mom when she had lung cancer. I was 24. I was not, we were not at Kaiser. And had I not been there to remember things, write things down, medications, treatments, remind the doctor, um, you have to wonder what would have fallen through the cracks, right? And, and that, is, that is so unbelievable in 2017 that we're talking about this, right? So my question to you is, is it resistance to change? Is it we don't perceive there's a problem? Or is it politics and money and, and pharmaceutical lobby and you name it? What, what's preventing us from following in like Kaiser's footsteps? So hopefully we'll get, we'll get to the pharmaceutical world later on because yeah, that is a different a situation <laughs> where I do think that's a very intentional overpricing of drugs without wanting to make the investments necessary to create the breakthrough treatments that are required. But most of it, and I talk about it in the book a lot, is not bad people. I train residents at Stanford. Two residents in their last year look exactly the same. They're equally well-trained. They're equally smart. One of them comes into a, an integrated organization like a Kaiser Permanente. One opens an office in the community, and a year later, their behaviors are totally different. It's the context that shifts that perception that changes that behavior. And if you think about how medicine is organized in the United States today, it very much resembles a 19th century British cottage industry. Yeah. Of course, the United States, doctors are scattered in small offices. There's a hospital in every little town. Uh, it's uh, paid on a piecemeal basis. Right. We call it fee-for-service. It uses the technology of the last century. You know, we talk about electronic health record a lot. But even if doctors have a record in their office, it doesn't connect with other physicians. It doesn't present the information. And finally, there's no leadership structure to organize it. Care has to be integrated both horizontally within a department or a specialty and vertically between them. And when you start to do that, you shift, you change the perception. All of a sudden, instead of the other doctors being competitors, they're now on the same team. People work together as one. Number two, when you start to pay people on a prepaid basis, a capitated basis, all of a sudden, prevention becomes a lot more important. Getting it right the first time, uh, being able to avoid a complication of a chronic disease rather than just treat it. When you have a, co a complete, a comprehensive electronic health record that presents the information every time you come in, the doctor will know what it is that you need done. And finally, physician leadership. Doctors will not follow hospital administrators or health plan executives. They will follow colleagues whom they know and they trust. And when you put these pieces together, you start to see the difference in outcome. There's so much to unpack there. I mean, it's a real system that needs to be peeled apart, and that takes a lot of courage. 
right? And that takes people who are from, as you said, administrator to doctor to a team to be a part of that solution and to show up and be willing to be courageous. Well, I wrote in this treatise why we think we're getting good health care and we're, why we're usually wrong for the patient and all of us. Because I don't believe that what I call in the book the legacy players are going to want to change. Why is that? Because they can't see the problem because their brains are going to make this perceptual change either in terms of reward or fear. I'll give you a great example of that. You know, right now we're sitting in the middle of Silicon Valley. Between San Jose and San Francisco, 50 miles, there are 10 hospitals doing heart surgery. Three of them do fewer than 300 surgeries a year. That means at least 65 days a year they have a team of people being paid to be available with nothing to do. Take the hospital administrators and put them in my business school class at Stanford. Every one of them will say, take the three hospitals, close two of the services, and consolidate can't do it. Why they can't, can't they do, do it? it? No. Because they're fear, fearful of their job. Because the board will say, where's, the, where's your, the revenue from heart surgery? It's one of the most profitable services, and you've just closed it down. That perception is our quality is great. Why is anyone complaining? They should be paying more because we need more because we're not doing very many cases. Yeah. Maybe it needs disruption. <laughs> it could well be. And what's been very clear to me is the consequence of this broken system not just on patients, but on doctors. What we know today is one out of every three, 30% of physicians report being depressed. Wow. There's over 400 suicides a year. Half of the physicians would tell their kids, don't go into medicine. Medicine is the greatest profession, and the broken system is not only mistreating patients, but I doctors. believe increasingly yeah. mistreating yeah. physicians. And as you just said, killing some physicians who yeah. take their own life as a result of the stresses that are created. You know, it's fascinating to me just over the last couple of months in talking with professionals in different systems that are stuck. And there's these common threads and common ingredients that, that exist in these different stuck systems. Fear, lack of leadership, lack of vision, inability to stop the train, right? Because we're all on this constant motion going forward and can't pause to think how do we better serve the end user if i'm best in class in heart surgery why why are there 10 or other hospitals around what would it take to get us to a place where we're being more efficient for the benefit of the patient i have concerns again that it's not going to come out of those legacy players but that it's going to require and why i wrote the book for the patient in all of us and that's my hope, that the book will resonate where people understand what they're not getting. If they see American medicine as being the best in the world, why are they not going to want the best in the world? But as soon as they see it as being in the lower half on every globally accepted measure of quality compared to the other 20 industrialized nations, last in life expectancy, second to last in childhood mortality, why would they not want it? And once they want it, demand it. I think it's going to potentially come through the businesses. Yeah. I think the businesses are going to have to say, we'll give you five years, but by five years from now, you have to put in place these four pillars. You've got to integrate with yeah. colleagues, both in your own specialty and across specialties. You've got to put in place the technology of the modern time, including mobile and video. Video, I think, will be one of the most important trends of the future. You don't want to miss work. You don't want to miss school. Where we live right now, the traffic is 
terrible. Parking is impossible. So why would we not want these tools? Because the context makes them broken. And they're going to say, we want to pay you on a prepaid and capitated basis because we want our employees not just to be healthy today, but to be healthy a decade from now and two decades from now. And as the big businesses start to demand that of the system, as we have systems and geographies competing with each other now, and having transparency of data, now what you're describing will start to happen because you'll be able to understand who gets the best results. Sometimes it's very, very hard on a single physician basis to say who's better than, than another person because the numbers are so small. Yeah. But there are things that we know. Give you a really great example. Women who have to have their uterus taken out of hysterectomy have two options. A long incision in their abdomen with the muscles being split apart, requiring them to spend several days in the hospital and a minimum of six weeks before they can even pick up anything bigger than a shoebox, or done through what's called the laparoscope. It's actually done through two uh, little telescopes that go in and do it through tiny little incisions, often as an outpatient, and within a week or even 10 days, you're almost back to normal. If you look across the United States, what do you see? Half of the surgery is still done with that long, big incision. Why is that? Because the minimally invasive is more difficult. Across the United States, half of the gynecologic surgeons do fewer than 10 hysterectomies a year. You can't get your quality. You can't use the more difficult technique when you're not doing enough volume. As soon as you integrate, now all of a sudden what you do is you have people who specialize in this. Another great example, I was walking down some steps, it was rainy day, and the gentleman above me slipped and fell and came crashing towards me. And as he came down, luckily I heard him, so I grabbed the rail and turned, and his weight and my weight buckled my knee, broken eight places. I drove to Kaiser Santa Clara. I saw the surgeon there who I know very well. He actually, I'm, a, I'm a pretty aggressive skier and he, he's taking care of me after a couple <laughs> of tough tumbles. And uh, he looked at it, he knew exactly what was wrong. And two things that happened that were amazing. Number one, he said to me, Mr. this is a great surgeon. I know him really well. He said, I'll do your surgery if you want, but there's a guy better than me in Kaiser San Jose at your particular operation. I try to think how difficult it is in a fee-for-service world to say that to someone. This is a very complex operation. I'm sure there's a large price tag associated. The second thing that was amazing to me is I ne actually never met the surgeon until the day I had my operation. I did a video visit. He had my electronic health record. He could see me. He could see the x-rays. Why should I have yeah. to drive there, have the pain of the ambulance, the pain coming back to say nothing about the cost, goes back to context setting perception. In an integrated, prepaid, capitated, technologically enabled world, these kinds of things just happen. The same doctors put into a fragmented FIFA service, typical American community practice, simply would behave differently. Not because they're bad people, bad parents, bad raising, bad, no. They're exactly the same. Context shifts that perception, subconsciously by the way, and changes the behavior. My aunt was an administrator in the healthcare system in Canada for about 30, 35 years, retired a couple years ago. Her husband, a heavy smoker, heavy, heavy smoker until a few years ago. 
And uh, I remember, I have this very visceral memory when I was younger, going to the store there with him, and he would buy this this pack of cigarettes that was, at the time, just an outrageous amount of money, right? Oh, it's the taxes. It's the tax that's put on top of this, so, you know, we have these, these services. Okay, you know, as a young person, I'm taking all this in. Well, cut to 20, 25 years later, um, almost completely blocked arteries, many strokes happening. My aunt takes him to the, to the hospital, and the hospital says it's going to be about a month and a half before you can have surgery here. And my aunt, who's got all sorts of connections and a history in this business, right, couldn't pull any strings. So she went to the States to have the surgery done and paid cash. So your story has two very important parts to me. The first one is, and again, I want for the listeners to think again this idea of how context shapes perception, because it's not intuitively obvious. We think we're intellectual people. We're rational decision makers. Actually, before I tell you that, I'm going to tell you a little story about President Bill Clinton. So Bill Clinton, after his term was up, went with his wife, Senator Clinton, to New York, where she was the senator, and he developed some cardiac problems. And he needed to have a cardiac evaluation. The state of New York publishes data on the 35 hospitals in the greater New York area that do heart surgery. He chose the one with the second worst outcomes. Then when he needed surgery, he chose the one with the worst outcomes, and he had a major complication. What a surprise. (laughs) This is the president who was involved in trying to change the American healthcare system. And then what's even more interesting is six years later when he needed to have surgery done for the complication, guess where he went? It's not logical. But probably a friend said this hospital is good or told him that the doctor was the best that there is, even though there was no data for them to say it. In fact, it was the opposite of the data that existed. That's how the context shapes the perception. Back to the smokers, though. Ask a smoker, are they going to die from lung cancer? They're going to say no. Every smoker is convinced if they thought they were going to get lung cancer, they would probably stop smoking. And yet what we know is it's the overriding driver of lung cancer, not just in men, but increasingly in women. But the reward of that nicotine, even at the high price, does not let them see themselves as getting cancer, just like the doctors can't see themselves as needing to wash their hands. They're somehow miraculously germ-free. I trained at Stanford in my residency, and we spent, I spent uh, six months in Calgary where we had a sister program, so I know the Canadian system pretty well. And every healthcare system has to make choices at the insurance level today. The problem is the delivery system level. And what I would say is across the globe, there are very few high-performing delivery systems. In the book, I write about one particular one in Sweden that I had a chance to see. Uh, There are some, I think, that do it better than others. I also write a Forbes blog. In my blog today, I write about why every American should be given concierge medicine, by which I mean a lot more primary care and actually probably a little bit less specialty care. Uh, And so what you're describing is a different use of resources. More investment in primary care in Canada, less in the specialty care, more investment in the places that are going to make the difference, less investment in the ones that are that are not but there are downfalls i fear that unless we change the delivery system we're going to devolve into a two-tier system of medicine now today we have a two-tier system the poor do not get the same care as everyone else but i'm talking about the middle class the typical worker somewhat on medicare now having the kind of canadian experience but actually worse because not only can they not get access into the specialty care because the backlogs exist, but they can't get good access into primary care 
because we're simply not trading enough doctors in the United States today. We're not valuing them enough. We're not paying them enough. And the system is, is becoming more broken over time, and the consequence is greater mistreatment, not less. Or perhaps how they're paid, right? I mean, you talk a bit about that, that it's per, per service versus for quality. You know, one of the big themes in American medicine today that everyone likes to talk about is pay for value. If you think about it, would you rather have a stroke and then have some miraculous surgeon go in there and pull out a clot or put a stent in place? Or would you rather have your blood pressure controlled not 55% of the time, but 90% of the time? Right. That's not how we pay doctors. That's not the American culture. Yeah. Would you rather avoid colon cancer in the first place, but only half of the people, 50 to 60% are screened nationally, as opposed to the large integrated groups that are 90%? Right. But if you read the newspaper, they don't write about fit tests. They don't write about the preventive services. They write about the new drug that costs a tremendous amount of money and extends life a few weeks or maybe a couple of months at most. Would you rather get care for many problems, not every problem, but the ones that don't require a physical examination or a follow-up visit using a video, or would you rather go to the doctor's office? But that's not the way that doctors value it. In the book, I talk about the fact that when my father was recovering from that horrific uh, hospital stay, 90% of the time, all the physician was doing was checking his feet and his wounds could have done it just as easily with a digital picture or with a, a video visit. Sure. But when you're not being paid to do digital visits or video and you are paid every time the Medicare yeah. patient fee-for-service walks through the door. Yeah, what's the incentive, right? All of a sudden you see video and digital. Well, I don't think it's good quality. Give you one last example, which I, I, I find so fascinating. There's a big push in this pay-for-value. Orthopedics came up with five areas that they thought could reduce care, not a single one of which was under an orthopedic surgeon's process. If you had a knee injury and you've torn your meniscus, there's an operation that's done where the doctor goes in there with a scope, looks inside, cleans it up a little bit, trims some edges. It's the most commonly done orthopedic surgery in the United States today. The data out of Canada, interestingly enough, shows that doing that operation with physical therapy versus physical therapy alone adds no value. Multiple studies done demonstrate this operation is valueless, but if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you don't see that opportunity. Right. If you're the patient, you don't see that opportunity. It's just a broken system that leads to mistreatment. As we speak, you know, the healthcare bill on the Senate side is being unveiled, if you will, with you know, very little time, as I understand it, to, to read it, let alone debate it. Are we going forward or are you going to go further backward in terms of the, the, the system of care here in the United States? So when the first bill was passed by the House, the AHCA, I lived my life on airplanes and in studios. I was in CBS this morning. I was at NPR. I was on CNBC, Bloomberg. You, you name it. I was on every show talking about it. And one of the points that I made is this is still early in the process. And that's what I would say about the Senate bill. It's still early in the process. This whole legislation is going to have to evolve over time. It's why, again, I focus in mistreated on the delivery system because health insurance has to have certain characteristics. It needs to be comprehensive. If you don't have coverage, you're not going to get good care. Number two, it has to be affordable because if the out-of-pocket is so great, and by the way, in 2010, 25% of individuals were paying uh, a high deductible. That's up to $5,000 out-of-pocket. 
it's now up to 40%. And number three, it's got to cover the things you're going to get. You, if you have insurance but it doesn't cover it and you can't afford it out of pocket, basically you're not going to get the care. Let me close by telling you one last story because I think it's in many ways maybe the most important story of the book. And it happened at my end of my father's life. So I told you he didn't die at that first hospital admission, but he had complications and ultimately he ended up needing to have anticoagulation that ended up leading to a bleed inside of his uh, brain. My brother and I heard about it, flew the red eye from California to Florida where he was hospitalized. When we arrived there, the ENT doctor wants to do a tracheostomy. The GI doc wants to put a feeding tube in place. The neurosurgeon wants to take out bones so his brain can expand. My brother and I look at the x-rays. We look at my dad. We're both physicians. We say, he's not getting better. He doesn't want to live the rest of his life in this way. So we, t we thank the physicians, but we tell them no thank you. The next two and a half days he's in the hospital, we never see a physician. There is no what's called in medicine CPT code, how you bill and collect for compassion. There's no way that in a fee-for-service world the doctor gets paid to be with a family in its most, most tragic moments. That's what's really broken about the American healthcare system because a medicine as a profession has been about excellence, but it's also been about compassion. We're slowly losing it. We can get it back. If we can ignite the patient in all of us across this country, change is possible, change will happen, and the health of all of us will be better. ALF is passionately committed to building diverse networks of leaders focused on personal and community transformation in order to create an inclusive and thriving Silicon Valley. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please visit us online at alfsv.org.